We have been pursuing a series on Matthew, and we're up to Matthew 17, the last part. So if you would take up your Bibles and turn with me or with the neighbor to the Word of God, we're going to read from the last four verses, Matthew 17, 24, and 27. When there are such, I read parallel passages, there are none in this instance of Jesus and the temple tax and Jesus performing or calling, going to perform the miracle of this fish that comes up with a piece of money in its mouth by his great power and his guidance. This is unique to Matthew. May we hear this word of God Matthew 17, 24, this is my text for this evening's sermon. When they come, when they had come to Capernaum, the disciples, those who received the temple tax, tax collectors, they came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first, When you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. That's as far as we'll read Jesus and the temple tax. Well, it's that time of year for most of us, I suppose. The tax collectors are come to our door. We have to submit our taxes to the IRS. As they say, there's things that are certain like death and taxes, but we need to know this in light of Jesus dealing with such a mundane thing as taxes that not only are death and taxes certain, but Jesus is. In another place, later on in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus will speak of taxes that Caesar requires, and he'll set forth some principles about how we should behave as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and citizens in this world. But here, Jesus considers some things about the temple tax. When people came up to him, who were the tax collectors among the Jews, and they uh, asked Peter if his teacher, Jesus, paid taxes or not, such taxes such as the temple tax. And at this time, as always, Jesus points to one thing, and that's himself. He is interested in taxes, of course. He's interested in everything in this, in this world. It, it's his, after all. And yet he wants somehow there to be a lesson here in the payment of temple taxes or not of himself, and of what he's all about here amongst the Jews and even amongst the Romans. And so 
there's something for us to learn here. And we want to consider what Jesus teaches about the exemption of the sons. He speaks of sons who are sons of the king, whoever that is, being exempt from paying all taxes, not just temple taxes, but all taxes in a certain way. And then we want to consider that Jesus speaks of a certain obligation that he has, and by implication also that we have, if we be free sons. We're not free, after all, to do what we want, but we're free to serve a higher purpose, even the heavenly fathers whose sons we are. And so, of Jesus and the temple tax, two lessons here, lessons of the gospel, simple lessons of sin and salvation and service, of the sons of God who are free, and of the sons of God who are gladly obliged to serve God and to point to the cross and the liberty that is in Christ. This time, according to the law of Moses, Exodus 30, verses 11 through 16, I believe, there is this taking of a tax, temple tax for the maintenance of the sacrifices, for the payment of the priest in some way, for the upkeep of the temple itself. This was required, according to Exodus 30, by the law of Moses at the first census that they had. And some people think it was just required then. But be that as it may, about this time in the first century AD, there was an annual requirement that all the Jews from 20 through 50, the males, would be required to pay a half shekel, half shekel. And that would be for the maintenance of the temple. Could be as well that there was a requirement imposed by the Romans. Not so sure about that, but the Romans seemed to have gotten in here. They wanted, for some reason or another, the temple in their jurisdiction, the Roman Empire, to be cared for. This is part of what they th thought was a way to please the Jews. And, and so this is the question that is asked to Peter of his master, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Maybe they're saying here, does he or doesn't he? And whatever they were saying exactly, Peter says, yes, he does pay the temple tax. Or he would pay the temple tax. We don't have any record of Jesus paying the tax uh, before this. But Peter, maybe he's being impetuous. Maybe he's blurting something out. But he's saying something here. And Jesus does end up paying the tax for him and for Peter. So we know that much. But at this time, Jesus has something to say to Peter. There's a lesson for Peter and, by implication, for us. When Peter had come into the house, kind of blindsided by the tax collectors, maybe wondering what to, to think, Jesus anticipated him. That is, he, he prevented him. He, he came knowing what Peter had just said about Jesus paying taxes and, and by implication, the disciples. And so he brings up the subject. What do you think, Simon? Calls him Simon, not Peter. From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers 
And Peter said to him, from strangers. And then Jesus concludes, well, then the sons are free, aren't they? And he's, imply, he's, he's teaching there a lesson of, of, we know of every kingdom. If you're in the family of the king, if you're a son or a daughter of the king, you don't pay taxes. Um, you're the family. You're in the family. But if you're not, then you'll have to pay your taxes as obeisance to the king, the support of his reign. Now, what's Jesus speaking of here? My beloved, he's speaking of the identity of himself and of all of those who are with him, disciples, true disciples of him. And this also is what he's teaching about us, true disciples of him, but of himself, first of all. With a broad statement, who do kings in general, kings of the earth, from whom do they take customs or taxes from their sons or strangers? And the answer from strangers, Jesus goes back and says what is the reality that he's been attempting to convey in his own person and work in his flesh among the people. And that reality is this. He's the son of the Father in heaven. He's the son of that king. First of all, this son. That's what he's saying. The sons, all the sons are free, but he's pointing to himself as the son of all the sons there ever would be of the living God. Jesus has just elicited that confession from Jesus in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked the disciples, who do you think that I am? And Jesus said, or Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Essentially divine. The great eternal and natural son, as the Heidelberg Catechism describes the eternal sonship of Jesus, the eternal, natural Son of God, God with us, and God over us. This is remarkable here because what's being asked of Peter and therefore of Jesus is if Jesus would be under certain people. That is, Would he be submissive? Should he not be submissive, this Jesus, to the laws of God? And maybe the laws of the Roman Empire, if they again had a hand in it. Does your teacher, that's the concern of those tax collectors, those deduct, uh, the, the tax collectors, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? The wanting to know this Jesus. Is he placing himself under us as he should? Because, after all, we're the sons of Moses and of Abraham. We have a law here. Or is he not going to do that? Is he a subversive, a seditious sort of folk, of man, so that he would not pay if the Romans were involved in this? What's this Jesus going to do here? about this religious thing, very religious. You have to be to pay this tax. You're all in it. You're committed. Where your money is, where your mouth is, there your your money ought to be. Jesus says here rather cryptically, 
that he's not under anybody. That's the idea of his saying he's free. And his implying that he's the son of God, the sons of the king of heaven and earth. He goes from the earthly, asking a question about kings of the earth who take customs and taxes from their sons or from their strangers. And Peter admits the obvious fact. They take them from strangers. And then he goes up to the heavenly. Jesus is always doing that. He's always doing that, even with regard to instruction on taxes. Sons are free. I'm free. You've asked me, you Messiah catchers, you're going to try to trip me up. You've asked me if I pay taxes or not. Let it be known, I don't have to. I own everything. I'm the king of kings. I'm the free son of God, exempt from all restrictions here below. Amazing. I'm the one who created the, and owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I'm the one who made the heavens and the earth, that word of God in the beginning. I'm not under strictures of anything here below anything. Any law of nature, I have come voluntarily to take on human flesh. And I will go to the death of the cross, but that's simply because I will go there. I volunteer in love to my Father, in love to my people. I'm going there. It's not taking me. I'm laying down my life. In great love to God and my people, my sheep. He's free of that. Free. Free of that binding. Free then of the law. He's above the law. It's always been a discussion in church history even, or even in political history. Don't want to sidetrack you, but this is relevant. Whether there is behind kings a law to which they're subject. Many people have said yes, and they have written books in Latin, Lex Rex, law first, and the king is not an absolute sovereign, the Lex, the law, is first. Other people have said, no, it's Rex Lex, the king and the law serves him, he makes the laws. What do you think Jesus is saying here? Is it lex, rex? Is the law above him? Or is he above the law? Well, it's the latter. He's free. He's the law giver, not Moses. He's not subject to any laws of nature or any laws of men or any laws religious. He's that over everything. He's that kingly, even though he be the son of a king. Because to him is given all the worlds. As he comes to the earth in his human nature, he's not only God the king, but he's the Messiah king. 
And he asks of the Father, and he gives him the earth as his inheritance, and all the kings of the earth, and all of these things. And he's going to prove that sovereignty, that absolute sovereignty, when in demonstration of his humility, as we'll see presently, he asks Peter to go fishing and to take up a hook and throw it in the water and promises Peter then there's going to be a fish that comes up and the first one will have in its mouth a piece of money and he's to take that and give that money which will be sufficient for two, two of them to pay the half shekel tax. It'll be a shekel or a statter, a Roman statter. And you pay the taxes. We're going to do that. But look what Jesus does. He proves in this unique miracle, in connection with taxes and instruction on them, nobody holds Jesus. The fish don't operate apart from his will. In all the coins in the world, they fall here and there, or they fall into a mouth of, of a fish just according to the will of Almighty God revealed in Jesus Christ. So Jesus proves here what he's intimating when he speaks rather cryptically of sons being free. And that, in distinction from strangers, that's interesting, in distinction from strangers, strangers have to pay the taxes Strangers have to be submissive to the king. Strangers aren't in the family. Jesus is making a distinction here between sons and strangers. And when he implies clearly that Peter is not a stranger but a son, he's including him among the number of the family of God under Jesus, as we'll see presently. But there's a bunch of strangers. A bunch of strangers. You see that here? Strangers collecting taxes. While Jesus is with the people, has been ministering to the people now at this point in Matthew for years, soon to go to his demise, as we say, to the cross and death of Calvary. But there's strangers who haven't got it. In fact, they haven't got it at all that they want to get rid of Jesus. They want to test him, as this incident reveals, and then they want him dead. So what Jesus is implying here, he's hinting at here for those who will hear is that there's sons or there's strangers and all of these people involved in tax collecting and trying to trip me up, they're the strangers. They're not my disciples. They don't get it. They don't understand that Jesus has come to fulfill the law of the temple. To be the temple of God, to be the sacrifice of the temple and the high priest who makes it. They say that's impossible. So, they're strangers. And the Romans too, they're involved in it. If they're involved in this for sure and saying, you know, we, we put our imprimatur on this whole tax-collecting bit, and 
We know it's a Jewish thing, but we're superintending all things Jewish here. We're the Romans, after all. This is the kingdom of Caesar. And Caesar is a kind of soter. He's a kind of savior. And Jesus says those are strangers too. But even the people in the house of God who had the temple and the ordinances, they were revealing themselves to be strangers, aliens from the true commonwealth of God. Not sons of the king of heaven, the father in heaven, like Jesus and like his disciples. Not at all. Estranged from God. Haters of God and haters of Jesus, therefore, and of this way that he is, this truth that he is, this life that he, he gives. Now, this is revealed here. I'm not making this up, am I? Isn't this the simple gospel of, of the word of God everywhere? There's sons of God, there's daughters of God, there's strangers to God, and that's today too. The Jews were going about uh, seeking to do the law. They were doers of the law, but they were not able to do the law. They were under the curse of God. They were not believing in the Messiah that was right before their very eyes. They were not heeding his words. They were not doing anything but being amazed at his miracles. They weren't believing him. And they're strangers, like today, strangers. So many. They go about eating and drinking and collecting taxes and then dying. These are all certain things for them. And because there are certain things, before we die, let's gain the most toys. And he who dies with the most toys wins And let's have fun and let's ignore this religion thing called Christianity that's too exclusive. It's just too exclusive. It doesn't fit the way we operate. And in fact, that's the truth of world religions. The way the world religions operate is we save ourselves and and we do good things and we're ethical and we're moral and we're kind to people and we deny maybe things to ourselves, or we live in a cave or on a pillar like the stylites of the ancient time. And by that, we will get up to God. By that kind of righteousness, we will certainly get up to God. And Jesus comes, and he blows that notion out of the water. He says, I come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Christianity is the religion of grace, free, unmerited favor for you tax collectors, you tax payers, or you would like to flee the country before you would pay a dime to the IRS. Who are we? Strangers to God. It can be that way even in the church. That's the whole problem Jesus faced in the place of what was called God's people's place. He came and he found them without faith and rebelling and carnal and thinking up notions of of God that weren't at all clear and true of God. 
But then there's other sons. And Jesus speaks of other sons, and Jesus will pay the temple tax for Peter. Now, the Roman Catholics make hay out of this. Ah, you got Jesus, the son of God, one of the sons of the king, of the father. He's free, and so is Peter. Pope Peter, he's free. He's somehow elevated once again, they say. Here's another instance of Peter being set apart from the others. But that's not true here. Even though Jesus pays the temple tax for Peter, it could easily be explained that he's doing that simply because Peter was the only one there, or at least the only one who engaged with these people, and so Jesus would teach Peter a lesson, rather humbling maybe too, if Peter indeed blurted this out. Jesus is just covering his back, as it were, paying the tax for himself and for Peter. For himself, not that he was obliged, but for Peter, who was indeed obliged, being an earthly son and a Jew. But Peter is a son. Jesus says, and the sons are free. He distinguishes sons from strangers, and grace distinguishes sons from strangers. All because of the one son revealed here in this thing of taxes, who was revealed earlier in the chapter on the Mount of Transfiguration, and then after that in the healing of an epileptic and the exorcism of this devil. Now in the realm of taxes. And Peter is revealed to be a son who's free. That's the glorious gospel. Are you free? You really feel free? That's a glorious thing, you know. If you've ever been caught in sin and you're not free from sin for a long time, and then suddenly you're free by the grace of God. What an exhilarating experience. What it is to find in the Word of God that when you're made a child of God, you truly are a child of that family and that covenant love you know so that you're brought into the glorious liberty, Paul says, of the children of God. And you're given the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, the Lord, the exalted Lord Jesus, there is liberty, freedom from guilt, freedom from depravity so that you can begin to serve God and not your stinking passions. Oh, my. You're free. Which makes for all kinds of great things like peace with God and assurance and time on your hands that's not on your hands. It's it's an agenda that God's making for you. You're free, and you see right ahead of you, oh, now I'm free to do that. I'm free to do that. It's great, isn't it? You're free. Free from the past. Some of us have a past. You can write a thousand bad books about, bad story. You free from that? Are you? Maybe there's... Some of us here aren't free. A lot of talk in the church 
world nowadays of abuse. Ever been abused? I think with all the talk of abuse, those of us who never thought we were abused are starting to wonder. And we call it abuse. That's the name. Well, it's real, though. It's real for many people. Abused psychologically, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, with one pharisaistical binding of a conscience after another in certain churches, and it's disgusting. Are you free from that past, beloved? Is what I always say to people and myself. Don't think of your past without going all the way back to the cross, the center of history. The story God has written and ordained, that's your past. You're taken up into the fellowship of God so that you can be part of the story of God, the good news of God with us and God with you. Never mind that creep who abused you or those parents who weren't so perfect as you wish they had been. Go back to Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. Not to wax any more eloquent about that, just now the obligation. Here's Jesus He says the sons are free. He's free. He's over everything. He's the eternal son of God. And we're free for his sake in the midst of the strangers. And all we can do is not boast, but be humble because for the grace of God, we're still strangers. Strangers. Aliens and alienated from God. But by the grace of God, we're sons. And Jesus has his big nevertheless. Nevertheless, though we're free, and I'm free, and you're free, lest we offend them, the tax collectors, go to the sea, cast in the hook, take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money, take that and give it to them for me and you. I do want to say here as an aside that there's some people who believe that Jesus never, that this never happened. Because here, look, look at this. You look at the narrative, and there's no record that, Jesus, that Peter did this, that he went fishing on the Sea of Galilee and, and actually came up with this piece of money. Jesus is just speaking of this fancifully. I don't know, maybe to, to get people off his back, but that's all irreverent and wrong. Jesus, after all, is speaking here. Lest we offend people, you go to the sea. It's real. I don't want to offend people. Though I'm free from all men and not obliged to them, you go fishing and take up the fish who comes to you first, the very first one. He'll have a a stator in his mouth. A stator. A stator. A stator was a Roman coin at that day, still in use. And there were gods on that coin as well, I think, of Caesar, who thought himself as a god. And, and that would be later exchanged for Jewish money and made to be the temple tax that would be sufficient for them. Just right. A shekel, enough for two. 
No reason to doubt this miracle, no reason to doubt that Peter was an agent in the accomplishment of the miracle. He was used of Jesus, and there it is. Now, what's going on here? Jesus, who's overall, is humbling himself. That's what's going on here. What a beautiful thing. Don't we read that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and he made himself of no reputation? He became a servant, all these things in Philippians 2. That's what's going on here. Just as at the baptism of John, he's baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Here he is, having placed himself under the law, now abiding and tolerating this law so that he won't give offense. That is, meaning this. So that Jesus will not get in the way of the message of the cross by appearing to be a lawbreaker. You see, the disciples couldn't even understand Jesus at this point, and how much less those ignorant Pharisees who thought they knew everything. And so Jesus says, I don't want to offend them. I don't want to offend a whole lot of them. No doubt that some of them were his. And what he's saying here, it's remarkable how Jesus always does this in every single appearance in the New Testament. He's pointing to himself as the Savior of the cross of Calvary. And there may be nothing else that gets in the way of people believing that, not his alleged selfishness and um, uh, law-breaking foolishness and so on. Everything must be not only above board, but clearly his being evidenced to be righteous. You see, the cross is offensive enough to those who don't believe it. We read of that in Peter, and the cross is a stone of stumbling, a scandal, as is the word for offense here. And Jesus wants that to be the offensive thing. He wants people to go to that cross and either crucify him and laugh, or having crucified him and repent. That's you and me, by the way. We were there when they crucified our Lord. With the whole wretched humanity, Jew and Gentile, wanting Barabbas and not Jesus, wanting Jesus to get out of our hair, wanting to sing with strange people. Imagine there's no religion. Imagine, just imagine that. Wouldn't we all be free from bitter fighting about who's God and who's not? Imagine there's no Christianity. Imagine there's no Jesus. Jesus wants the cross to be, if they're going to stumble, where they stumble. Because there, God in all his glory is revealed. God in his humiliation. God in Jesus, in his humiliation. He's going the way of the cross. And this stooping low to pay a trinket, a half shekel for himself and then for Peter, that's nothing compared to that. So he doesn't want people to stumble over that as if this is all what Jesus is doing here, just changing the laws or saying, I'm free from the law. Oh, no. He's coming to fulfill the law, and he's going to fill it all the way to Calvary, and then he's going to bear the punishment of the law, the wrath of God for you and for me. It gets worse and worse and worse when you consider that. 
But then it becomes better and better and better for us who believe that because this is what Jesus is all about. And here, this is even brought out by the fact that Exodus 30 says that the temple tax was for the atonement of the soul. You can read of that in Exodus 30. It was atonement money. Jesus here offers this this trinket, this silver or this gold, whatever it was. And what he's saying is that there's a greater thing that's going to happen here. And there's atonement now of money for Peter and for myself. Well, he's even going to let them think that, though he has no sin. But I'm bound to offer the real ransom price, the real payment, my blood. Don't be offended that this man who says that he's above the priests and so on acts as if he's just under them and their law. Think about Jesus, what will happen to him, what he will do. And believe that he's going to offer a great ransom for the souls of people and money cannot do that. He's the temple, after all. He's the cross. He's the the crucified one. He's the offering. And by the precious blood of Jesus, souls are atoned. So that's what he's doing here. This free son. This free son of God is has come to this earth and everything about him is his stooping low and going down, down, down. Everything about him in love, in love, not compulsion, in love. And this is what he says for us too. That's what we want to leave with. He speaks of free sons, does Jesus. They're the sons free. And then he says, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go fishing. And this is precisely what we have to remember here as we think about what we're hearing. If you are a free son or daughter, and you're with Jesus and Jesus is with you, Point others to the cross. Don't point them away from the cross as the only way of salvation by your misbehavior. You're thinking that you're free to do this or that when people who are watching you are saying, that person isn't living righteously. They're saying one thing, they're not doing what they're saying. This is our whole life. Not giving offense, but pointing people to the cross. And if they're offended there, so be it. That's the stumbling block, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. But don't let it be you. Don't let it be you in the church. Don't let it be you by your misbehavior, your inconsistency, and as we'll see tonight, your lack of integrity. So you come to church, so you do this and you do that, and... You're using your liberty as an occasion for blasphemy. God keep us from that. But beloved, just as Jesus, who freely 
went all the way to hell and back. Shall we not do that? How much do you love Jesus? You see, you were a stranger. Now you're a son, if you believe. Now you're a daughter, if you believe. And when you believe, beloved, Jesus is everything. And he's free for you. And he's yours. And he's bought more than the year's taxes you have to pay. He's bought your soul from hell and redeemed you. Lessons from Jesus in taxes at this time of year and always. Let's learn the lesson, shall we? And be those freeborn sons of God. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would bless us truly. We come away from this word of God and it always challenges us, always informs us, and always is used of the Spirit to quicken us to renewed faith. Jesus comes and he's the free Son of God and yet he deliberately humbles himself and makes himself of no reputation and goes to the death of the cross. And this all, Lord, obliges us in the freedom that we now have in communion with him to serve. Oh, may we serve. May we be free, Father, to walk in this earth and be a light in this dark place of those who are estranged from God, going about Jew and Gentile in their unbelief and chaotic state. In these last days, Father, equip us to be yours. Meanwhile, we pray, Father, in the midst of all the difficulties of life, to find courage, find comfort. And when we fall, we pray, lift us up again and help us to know the freeness of your love. Always, as we come to you, peace and wave upon wave of grace lapping at our shores. In Jesus' name, amen.